Tokyo. On the triathlon side of things, the Netherlands had a fantastic Olympic Games with Rachel Klammer coming in fourth in the individual race and in the mixed team relay, uh, the Dutch team coming in fourth as well, which was uh, an amazing result. So in this episode, Louis will discuss his general training and coaching philosophy, but we will also discuss some specific aspects of preparing for peak performances in the Tokyo Olympics. But before we get into that, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Roka create exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, performance sunglasses, as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. The most important thing that sets Roka apart is their attention to detail and their level of research and development and innovation that goes into all of their products. They leave no stone unturned in making their products the best they can possibly be, whether it's for performance or just for everyday wear, such as prescription eyeglasses. Roka have recently launched a new updated version of their Matador sunglasses, and these Matador sunglasses have increased airflow, which make them optimal for hot and humid conditions. And they have field-tested these glasses in the harshest conditions at some of the toughest races on the planet in different sports. So they're a hot new product, uh, pun intended. You can get 20% off your entire Roka order on roka.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a great tool for time-crunched triathletes that look, are looking to improve their swim-specific strength and technique. You can get in a very effective session on the Senate Swim Trainer in just 15 to 20 minutes from the comfort of your own home. So it's a perfect way to complement your pool swimming. Uh, perhaps when you don't have time to get to the pool or to the open water, you can at least get some consistency in your training by getting on the Swim Trainer. And it's inflatable, so it stores really small if you don't have a lot of space. You don't have to worry about getting a treadmill-sized piece of equipment into your home. That's not what the Senate Swim Trainer is. Uh, the Senate Swim Trainer is currently running a summer sale, and uh, when this episode comes out on the 30th of August, there's one more day to take advantage of that. So this offer is only valid until the 31st of August 2021. But on com forward slash TTS, you will get uh, a discount code, which takes the total discount for the Senate Swim Trainer up to uh, more than 40%. Uh, so we have the usual 20% discount, but you can get that added to the su- summer sale going on only until tomorrow when this episode comes out. So check that out. Again, the URL is senatesfromtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Louis Delahaye. Welcome to the Triathlon Show. Louis, how are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm in Edmonton in my three-day quarantine. So it's it's nice to record this, uh, this show. Uh, breaks the day a little bit. 
Yeah, you you have have something to do at least sitting there in in your hotel room. Uh, we're recording this uh, a few days, five, five days or so, four or five days before WTCS Edmonton, the the grand final. Uh, so you're there supporting the uh, the Dutch uh, national team. But I'll let you introduce yourself a bit further. Uh, can you tell the audience a bit more about yourself, who you are, where you came from, and and so on? Oh, on the one side, the long story, but. Uh... I make it. I make a chart. I'm Louis Delay. I'm, let's say, an endurance coach. I work in uh, in triathlon, cycling, running, and I do that already for a very long time. I'm from the Netherlands, from the south of the Netherlands, uh, Limburg, uh, a little bit hilly part of of, of the Netherlands, and uh, that's where I started my uh, coaching career uh, with a small athletic club was I think about 19 beginning of 1919 maybe 1989 as a very young coach I started to coach uh, runners more or less in the in the athletic club where I started my running career I used to be a runner first before I went into triathlon and uh, I got a lot of opportunities there I was let's say 23 years old as a coach that is very young no experience and yeah, they allowed me to make a lot of mistakes there. So I learned, and, and I learned a lot of that. And in that group, there were some young triathletes, uh, juniors, and yeah, they, there was a lot of potential in them. And I started to work with them, and they became the better athletes in the Netherlands, then in Europe. And that's how I got into the National Triathlon Federation in '93. I became a junior coach in 95. I became the elite coach in the Netherlands. And I did that till the Olympics in Sydney. Then I changed countries to Germany. So I was a national coach in Germany till 2006. And then I got the opportunity to fulfill a long time dream of myself to work in, in, in professional cycling. So in 2006, more or less, I went full time into professional cycling and Rabobank cycling team. Later, it became Blanco, then Belkin, and then uh, uh, the Jumbo team. And that still exists. I did that for a long time, till 2000, beginning of 2019. And then I chose to go full-time in triathlon again. I started with the Dutch Federation in 2015, like, like a help out for one, two days a week, next to my uh, coaching and cycling. And... Yeah, now now I'm now I'm here, <laughs> so it's a full time full time job again to be in triathlon, and apart from that, I coach a few cyclists. Yeah, well, in triathlon, the Netherlands had some amazing results in the in the Olympics, placing fourth in the mixed team relay, and Rachel Klammer took fourth in the women's individual race. So so that was fantastic, and also uh, one of the cyclists you coach, Annemiek van Vleuten, took uh, gold. Uh, took gold in the in the road race or was it a time trial race? The other way around. Her. She won the time trial and she was second in the road what? race. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's right. So so a great Tokyo behind you. Um, wh- one thing that I want to ask about your career, uh, having worked in both triathlon and cycling, is it very different with uh, regard to the pressure that you have on yourself and uh, from from the club, from the cycling team, or from the f- federation itself, or just how how pressurized the situation is and, and so on, or the politics behind the scenes and everything. How do you find that the two compare? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the big difference is that uh, cycling is a really big sport. And when you're in the Tour de France and you get out of the bus before the start, there are always 30 journalists standing in front of the, of the bus asking, asking questions. Obviously, that is not the case in triathlon. I think that is a big, big difference that the whole world looks over your shoulder. So, and a lot of people have an opinion of that, about that. In triathlon, you deal more or less with a small, yeah, inner circle, the athletes, the federation, maybe world triathlon, but, uh, it, it, it's smaller. That is only one side. And then the other side, triathlon is a much more individual sport. Even with the mixed, yeah. even with the mixed team right now, and and cycling, it's a team sport. It's yeah, it's a team sport. Uh, yeah, that that's that's really a big difference in in how you coach and and, and train. Mm, yeah, yeah. Each cyclist is maybe coached for their role in the team uh, as much as uh, or more more than anything else even though that might not be yeah. uh, to the it, well coached to the best of the teams and rather than to the best of the rider uh, perhaps um well let's uh, let's just start by talking about your coaching and if you can give a an overview and this is a difficult question always but uh, but feel free to interpret this as you as you wish an overview of your coaching and training philosophy yeah yeah i, I think you're saying it quite right there is a coaching and a training philosophy and yeah, it's it's on no, one side is a difficult question and because you sent me some questions i i gave it a thought and i think from a training perspective there is a few things that is really really important for me on the uh on the i think i mean it's it's, it's a popular word nowadays but I, I i see myself as a holistic trainer uh, which means that i take a lot of things and i try to bring it together and not only looking about from a speed side or a strength side or a metabolic side or whatever, I try to make it, yeah, bring it under one big thing and then make decisions. And having said that, from a training perspective, there is three things that's really important for me. First is context. Uh, it's quite easy to make a training program and training peaks and put down, let's say, one hour run. But the context has a big, big influence on what that one hour run does. Is the one hour run at 16 degrees or 30 degrees? Big difference in the stress that training puts on you. So I always try, especially when I coach from uh, from a certain distance and when. In, when I'm on a training camp, I can see my athletes every day. I can look them in the, in the eyes. For example, like with the cyclists, I don't see them every day. So then get information about the contacts. How did you sleep? How was the weather? Is it an altitude or sea level? Etc. 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 That is very important for me. So contacts for me, you can never underestimate. And the second thing, and a lot of coaches will say that is consistency. Every decision I make as a coach is uh, about consistency. Are we going to train today or not? It's always a matter of consistency. What what does it mean when I do this training today? What does it mean for tomorrow, for next week, or even next month? So that is important for me in making decisions about uh, yeah about about training. 
And the third one, it's uh, I call it fitness. I put a lot of energy to make my athletes, riders as fit as possible. So I'm not talking about speed or hard intervals, just as fit as possible. And fit means for me that you're healthy, that you have an incredible aerobic base, uh, that you're mentally fit, etc., etc. So I put a lot of energy into fitness. And I do that already for a long, long time because uh, I, think it, I think it's very important uh, to do so. So fitness really really important and maybe later on we can talk a little bit more about what 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 this means uh and then yeah. from from a, from a coaching perspective there is uh i think one line that's really important for me and uh, that's a happy athlete or a happy rider is a good rider or is a good uh, athlete and and also there, even in my training planning, the way I communicate with athletes, that is very important. If you don't like what you do, if you're not happy, you're not in the long term, you will not be able to perform, at least not on your personal max. So also there, I put a lot of energy to keep my athletes happy. I, sometimes I was with coaches on the side of the road, coaching a race, and then what is our job? Keep them happy. <laughs> And actually, it's like that. And the second thing from a coaching perspective, and uh, we will probably get to that later as well, is I try to make my athletes as anti-fragile as possible. And you probably know the book of uh, Nassim Taleb. And uh, yeah, I, I, I read it a few times, but also during the corona period, I really put a lot of energy in it, and I think there's a lot of wise things in that philosophy of uh, anti-fragility, and I think it's very important for for athletes. And what I see nowadays is that a lot of coaches make their athletes fragile, dependent. So, so that is more or less on the one side coaching, keep them happy, make them anti-fragile. On the training perspective, be consistent always uh, take into account the context of a session and the most important things for an athlete is fitness because out of this fitness thing you can build speed or uh, whatever anaerobic power or whatever but if you're not fit enough that is impossible to 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 do the rest and in my opinion a lot of athletes start uh, by doing the extras the 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 the, the, the special things, uh, hit sessions, whatever, before they are fit enough. So they suffer too too much, so the hit will not work or the speed will not work. So that's in a few minutes more or less my, my coaching and training philosophy. Yeah, there are many great points there. Uh, you mentioned the book Anti-Fragile, and it's it's one of those books that it's it's been on my to-read list for many years, actually, but I have never gotten around to reading it yet, and so it's still on that list. But so I maybe thank now, Corona for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe maybe this will trigger me now to, to yeah. get on it, but I know you're not the only one. I think Steve Magnus is, is a coach who has yeah. uh, uh, talked a lot about that concept of anti-fragility. Yeah. Uh, as has uh, David Tilbury Davis, who is my coach, has also talked about that. Mm. Um, the nice thing the, is always, every, I probably read the book three or four times because at first I think I was too stupid to understand. But every time you discover new things and it's very applicable on high-performance sport. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I 
I understand. Uh, I, I understand that uh, it definitely could be, and I definitely need to need to go and get it now. <laughs> and really, yeah. really said that um, the fitness concept is really interesting. So you mentioned there that it includes the an aerobic based conditioning, yeah. but also mental mental fitness. Uh, can you just talk a little bit more about well, how how exactly do you build that fitness? What what parts of the training and things outside of training are the things that are designed to build an athlete's fitness? Yeah, if if I look at fitness, uh, yeah, it's easy to say you need a base, uh, but and uh, what do you need a base? So on first, it's it's metabolic. So if a metabolic base for me, it means that you have an incredibly strong aerobic system, which means if you have an incredibly strong aerobic system, which means you will recover faster from a session. And so if you start too early by doing high intensity training, you probably will not recover because your fitness base, your metabolic fitness base is too low. So you can train less. So what it does with your shape more or less gets it down and you can do as much high intensity training or speed work as you want if you don't have to base to do it you do not recover and it doesn't make you better so that's why i say you cannot not underestimate the aerobic system in this fit fitness uh, concept more or less the second thing so that that was metabolic the second thing i think is you need also fitness in your neuromuscular system get strong and get fast so if i train like when i start training and i do it really easy because i want to have also a metabolic base it's always combined with let's say short sprints only yeah you do not produce lactate because it's only 50 meters swimming biking running i do a lot of short i do let's say my training program i would say is based on relatively high volumes at a very low intensity more or less and a lot of speed work i want to have also neuromuscular fitness so first we have the metabolic then we have the neuromuscular fitness the third thing is i want uh, also a health fitness so your immune system must be also at his peak and how do you keep your, your immune system at your peak obviously by uh, eating and, and and eating right but also by training right by do not overstress yourself you can train as hard as you want and I go back to the example of the starting the intense high intensity training too early the stress will be too big the risk that you will get sick is bigger and that is not good for your consistency so again, that is fitness for me, the immune system. Then a very important one for me is the psycho-emotional system. Uh, that's, the, that's the happy thing. That's the anti-fragile thing. Also there, you need to build fitness. Also there, when you're tired all the time, because you train normally too hard, you're not fit enough. You cannot deal with the, with, with the stressors that come to you when you have to race. So also that is uh, very important. Metabolic, neuromuscular, immune system, and the psycho-emotional system. And mm. if you look at that as one as one piece, I in all these systems, I try to get people to the maximum fitness level before I start to train specifically for the race. 
but they already have a really high level because on this training you can already do really good races. And now for the Olympics or for another big race, and then it's the last 1%. People think they get out of high-intensity training, they get like 20%, but it's about the last 1%. So that's why I focus so much on, on this fitness thing. Yeah. So a couple of follow-up questions on that. When you mentioned that uh, your training programs or your, your training, your coaching is based on fairly high-volume training, on a sort of do you know on a yearly basis like roughly how many hours do your olympic level athletes uh train or on a monthly or weekly yeah, basis let's say uh, at least that 1000 yeah yeah it's not as and, much uh, as like uh, christian blumenfeld for example uh, i think he brought that to another level but it's 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 quite a lot yeah. and it's also important where does your athlete come from if somebody comes from 600 hours, I cannot do 1,000 hours in one year. I have to build it up. But also there you need consistency. You see a lot of athletes who get, let's say, injured. So they always, they try to build up, but do it too fast. They get injured, go back. So for years and years and years in a row, they train like 700 hours. Not because they do not want to train more, but because it's impossible. And you have to break that chain and say, how do we get to, let's say, I, I now say 1,000, but I can also say 1,100 or 950, depending on the athlete you have before you. But uh, how do I interrupt this process of training, uh, injury, training, injury? So you have to find out a way to interrupt that. And in trilon, it's quite easy. Get the running out and get more cycling in if you are an athlete who is very prone to injury. Mm, yeah that's that's really interesting so would you, is that something that you do also for athletes that are not prone to injuries do they still are do fairly high volumes of cycling and fairly low volumes of running because in especially i think in in itu racing the running volumes can be a bit all over the place we see a lot of athletes that do really high running volumes but then we see some athletes that do really well on really low volumes when jorgensen i think was famous for doing very mm -hmm. low running volume but she was still one of the best in the history of the sport so so where My do you athletes fall on the also do relatively running? low running volume but relatively high cycling volume yeah and and long time ago it was probably the other way around but now mm -hmm after being back in trialon and after having worked a long time in cycling, I'm quite confident that cycling makes you a better runner. Mm. Yeah. And uh, on, we'll continue along this same theme, I think, but I want to ask you specifically about polarized training, because that's something that you have talked about. I heard on some other podcasts yeah. that, uh, that you, you like that concept. And well, that's something that we kind of heard already with the, fairly large volume of uh, low-intensity training. You mentioned just adding a lot of sprint work there for neuromuscular work. Uh, can you just elaborate on your thoughts on polarized training? First of all, uh, Aldis were already training polarized for a long, long, long time, but they didn't have a name for it and they didn't know it. They just did what they did. And then uh, I think it was Stephen Silo who came and he, and, and he did a lot of... Uh, analysis of training of, of the best and then he saw and and coined it uh, uh, the, the term polarized training so 
there was not a theory and we bring it into practice. There was practice and we made a nice theory out of it. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of reasons that I think this worked. First of all, the fitness concept I was talking about, it fits very well in this uh, polarized uh, approach. And when the polarized team came, came, yeah, when I, when I started to read about it a long time ago, that was also the time we had power meters and cycling for quite a while. So I just started analyzing the training of my riders. And then I saw, yeah, it's about 92, 95% aerobic training, what they did, even with all the races in. In a race, also, it's probably 92, 95% is aerobic in the aerobic uh, zone. So we already did it. Only later, I did it more, more planned, more, more or less. So yeah. I think that, that, that that's, that's the difference. And then if you look at it from a completely different angle, let's say the, 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 the risk management angle, if you look at aerobic training, there is not a big risk on overtraining. There is not a big risk on uh, injury. So what I do there more or less, and also that is in, in, in Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, 90% uh, of my training is uh, low risk, low risk in injury, low risk in overtraining. And then, uh, and then I get for 10%, there is, a, there is a risk. But I'm not doing like 50% gray zone where there is always a risk on a catastrophic uh, mistake. So it's 90-10 or, I mean, I, I'm not so interested in, in the percentages. It's more about the philosophy of the thing. And I know the philosophy for more than 30 years. The, the, the professor I, I work with in university, he always said, don't train grain, gray, train black and white. He didn't know what polarized was because it didn't exist. And they said, but you train easy or hard, not in between. That's not good mm -hmm. for your body. But yeah, hey, I was I was 23 years old. I did what he said, but I didn't know why. Now, now I can more reflect on why it could be working. Yeah. So so when you do that, the 10% of the training, or metaphorically speaking, at least, the, the hard training, the is that how do you define define hard in this case is it similar to what steven seiler did that it's above the second threshold about yeah. above lt2 is that what you also yeah, absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah for me it's uh maybe also interesting to talk about i'm not so interested in in like power or zones for me i have uh, more or less three kinds of training it's the easy training a long ride, a long run, whatever. Then I have what I call tempo endurance. That's more or less like marathon pace in running or let's say Ironman pace in biking. I do that a lot. That's that's block training. And I do hit. That's just as fast as you can. I'm not interested in, in how much power you do. I, in my training programs, you will never find the power value. Never. I just tell them, you do four by eight mainers as fast as you can, but the last one has to be as fast as the first one. So they learn to pace. And then depending on the context, altitude, sea level, warm or, or, or moderate climate, uh, 
what you did the day before or even on the same day, how you feel, and then that is that is uh, making your, your power. And that is what I see afterwards. And then I analyze the training. Then, then the numbers get interesting, but never before. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. The prescription of how, how you prescribe the sessions, and uh, and again, it's something that uh, a great podcast that I li- link to in the show notes with uh, with uh, Brad Beer, uh, yeah. who I can't remember what the name. The Physical Performance Show is the name of his podcast. Yeah. You, you were on that, and uh, I'll, I'll link to that because you talked about that concept there as well. And yeah. and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it makes makes perfect sense, and uh, it helps the athlete as well kind of train the way they race because in in the race in especially in in draft legal racing you you can't really i mean you don't pace to power you pace according to the, or you go the way the race dynamics go and you just need to to ask yourself can i follow this attack or yeah, uh, and exactly and the answer is yes i cannot no. tell you in let's say a half armman or olympic distance race you have to do it on this and this power i can say about this and this power but not exactly so it's very important that you get a feel for what you can get away with. Yeah. And that's really important. And I, in my philosophy, I don't help you by giving you exact numbers. I want you to make mistakes because when you do the four by eight and you go too fast, you blow up. But you that's a, what I call a good mistake. You mm. probably learn from them. So when you do it next time, maybe you're a little bit scared so you go too easy and then the last one will be much higher power and like making these good mistakes you get always closer to the goal that is if you have to go 20 kilometers or 80 kilometers or whatever as fast as possible that there is nothing in the tank when you cross the finish line that that's what time trialing about that's what pacing in the run is about and triathlon or cycling are sports where this is very important that you get a feel for where you can get away with and I think you can only learn that by doing. Yeah. And uh, one question that always comes up is when, when we discuss things like polarized training is, is it how applicable is it for, let's say, amateur athletes that train at half or less of the training volume than professionals do? Let's say they train eight to 10 hours. And, and also if they're training for, let's say, half or full distance triathlon rather than draft legal triathlon, which is uh, very different in terms of the, let's say, the power profile on the bike in particular mm. uh, compared to to non-draft triathlons. Do you still think that the concept has a place for amateurs? Or what oh, yeah, you absolutely. I, I absolutely think so. But if you train less, you have to be maybe a little bit more creative. Then it's can harder you, to can, get like the 90 or 10%, but I still think, uh, I mean, I said in the fitness concept, for me, it's very important to have a very strong uh, aerobic system, but you also need the other side. Only, let's say, maybe the professional will do uh, one session a week, a really hard session a week on the bike. Maybe you do a quarter of such a session. That's easy. If you do like two, let's say the, the recreational athlete does two bike sessions a week, it's also possible to do in one of those two sessions some kind of interval, but not do it like an hour intervals, but maybe just 15 minutes. Yeah, got it. Uh, 
And uh, then moving on to another topic is, uh, well, similar topic again is we have talked recently about um, muscle fiber t- typology on, on the podcast. I had an interview with uh, with Phil Bellinger on, on that topic. And <clears throat> that's something that you have also talked about previously with different athlete phenotypes, uh, calling them aerobic, anaerobic, and mixed phenotypes. And uh, can you explain <clears throat> how you train them or coach them differently based on that uh, phenotype? Yeah, I mean... I have some athletes, cyclists, who are more, let's say, in the direction of the faster phenotype. Uh, I mean, then you're not a sprinter, but for endurance athletes, you are fast. And for them, it's even more polarized. (laughs) The, The aerobic component, and then especially this Tempo endurance thing, I just, training I just talked uh, before, the, the, the marathon pace, Ironman pace, that will consist a big part of your training. But the really high intensity part, I wait as long as possible, maybe even to till two, two and a half weeks before your big race and do it one or two times and ready is. So that is the big difference between the real endurance type. And then in, in, if you look at the Olympic distance triathlon, I, well, at least I see both types, the extreme endurance types and even the faster type uh, will, will also build muscle easily when they do like strength training. Uh, we just have to look at the track to be fast. Yeah, okay. Then that's for me an opportunity to do more aerobic training. And what, what I almost always see is that they do not lose much of their speed if you go towards the aerobic component. If you look at the other side, the aerobic type, they build aerobic fitness very easily. So there we have to do maybe a little bit more, but also not more than the 10% we were talking about of high-intensity training. Only I start earlier with them. Maybe I do it with them all year round and give them a high-intensity training once in a while, but with the faster type, I wait very, very long. So that is... Mm. that that's. That, that's the two extreme direction. Then you have to mix. I, I have a lot of them. Uh, I do a, a little bit of both. Yeah. How, how do you profile athletes? How do you figure out what they are? I mean, is it just looking at their their files from races, their results in races, or do you have any specific workout field tests that you do or anything or a mix of different? No, I, I do not have a specific test, but... Uh, I look at a lot of different things. First of all, what do they do on uh, under distance? And what do they do on a 100-meter swim or on a 1,500-meter run or on a short time trial? I mean, that gives you already a lot of information. Then second, uh, if, you, if they start training and you do a fast set with them, how fast is it? How do they recover, etc.? That also gives you a lot of information. Then the third thing is... Uh, I worked with a Dutch company and university of Maastricht on DNA uh, analysis. And also there you get some really nice uh, results. At first I was skeptic, but now I did like 30 or 40 of these uh, DNA uh, tests. And it gives some very interesting information. And it, I think it, uh, it predicts quite well in what, 
and what uh, corner you are, more the speed corner or more the, 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 the aerobic corner, without overestimating it. So, and also the character of the athlete is, is very important for me to decide to, uh, in which direction they go. And then what I did from the beginning of my trainer career is I did a lot of uh, lactate testing. That's probably the only testing, the real testing I do. And then you have people who build lactate very easily and you have people who go all out and still do not build. Also, that is a uh, that is information for me. So all these things together, you decide to go a little bit more to the left or to the right and, and, and fast or slow uh, training. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, speaking of the lactate testing, uh, I meant to ask about the tempo endurance uh, training that you prescribe. Is that around lt1 uh is it slightly below yeah. slightly above what what is it yeah it's about you would say lt1 okay but also there i i did a lot of lactate testing when i was a uh, in the beginning when i was a running coach because i didn't know anything and lactate testing was quite new so it was also gathering information and then you start to see things uh, first of all for me there is only uh, one threshold, that's the first one. The second one doesn't exist for me because you cannot see it. And the, the, the professor I was talking about, Eugène Janssen, he said, what is typical for a threshold? You, know, you, you can see it. A threshold you can see. It's like when you get uh, into, a, in, uh, into a door, then there is like, how do you call it? What What's... I don't know the English word. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know either. But uh, yeah, but okay. Yeah, you can see it. Yeah. and if you don't lift your feet, you, 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 you crash more, more, more or less. Yeah. If you don't see it, it isn't there. There is no threshold. So the second threshold, the anaerobic threshold, or whatever you call it, for me, it's, it's not interesting. Yeah, it's a point on a on on a curve, but the first one. That is what I saw. I, almost always the level of the athlete has to do with how high the first threshold is. And for me, I define it as how long can you be stable? How long can you be low? And uh, the end, the first point where it starts, let's say where lactate starts to rise, that is for me the aerobic threshold or LT1 or whatever. And that is also the point where I do this tempo endurance training. Mm. Yeah. Uh, now let's discuss a little bit around the training and the preparations that you did for Tokyo with uh, the Dutch triathletes. So first, I just want to, and well, it can also be generally about your um, your view on things like tapering. So that's the first topic. How how was the taper? How did you think about tapering into the games? Okay, <laughs> these were very special games. We already knew that, let's say, five years ago that it would be very special games. So where you start without even talking about Corona that came into it now, but uh, and which had a big influence on the taper. You start to analyze what is needed for these Olympic Games. So first of all, you need to know the course. So we analyzed the course, and although there is, it's a flat course. We saw from the pre-Olympic race that it's a hard bike course with all the corners, et cetera, et cetera. So we knew the biking would be important. So, and we saw also because of the climate that the running was not really fast. 
So again, we come back to fitness. In my opinion, my analysis was that the Olympic Games would be won by the fittest athlete. I think now in hindsight, I think the two fittest athlete, men and woman, won. And so we didn't focus on uh, on being really fast over 10K or to do a really fast time probe to be as fit as possible. I mean, the second, that I mean, that's the course and the fitness you need to deal with it. The second thing is that it is the climate. It could be incredibly hot in Tokyo, so we put a lot of effort in how do I deal with that? And that's from two points of view. One, to a physical point of view, how do you deal with heat? Okay, we did a lot of climate room training. We went to hot environments in already in the beginning of the year in Namibia. We did a lot of uh, research in, let's say, pre-cooling and cooling, etc., etc., etc. And the second part is also the mental thing. If you get into these circumstances for the first time, and uh, you feel shit, <laughs> so you have to deal with it. I know from the pre-Olympic race, oh, I felt so tired when I was on the pontoon. I felt shit, uh, etc. Not even about the heat, but about the warm water, etc., etc. So you have to be prepared for that, also mentally, mental fitness. So we focused on 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 these aspects, and then. There is a time difference. So there's a lot of things coming together in a race like the Olympic distance in, in, in Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and then Corona came. So <laughs> it got postponed for one year I, in the end for Trilon. I was really happy with that because of the, the special circumstances in our, in our team. We needed one more year. Uh, because she was still young and, and full in development and uh, Rachel because of some personal things she needed uh, one more uh, one more year and and the boys also could use uh, could use one so I was happy with the extra year but the corona situation we know when we get to Tokyo we will be limited limited in what we train limited how we move etc 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 so from a uh, let's say tapering point of view Probably we would have gone earlier to Tokyo if there wouldn't have been Corona. But now we said, okay, we go eight days, uh, yeah, the hours of time difference before the first race, before in this case, in our case, it was the women's race. So uh, otherwise we would have gone early because we thought we need more time to adapt to the heat. But we were not allowed to train a lot. So yeah, okay, what we did is we trained till the day before we went to Tokyo and then and then we took off. We just keep busy over, over there and took our time to adapt to the heat because that was the extra factor. If you train like normal, yeah, okay, the, the, the stressor would be too big with and the time difference and the heat and the training. Mm. Uh, I'm curious about the the volume that you train in those last let's say two weeks before the game so probably before that before the last two weeks you were training between 20 to 25 hours per week or something uh, i would guess but in those last two two weeks roughly how much did volume decrease yeah i, I think the week like uh, let's say the the last week we didn't do a lot let's say 15 hours max 
But the week before, we did like 22, 23. Okay, yeah. And then yeah. The, the, the accent was on the first part of the week because later in the week, I think we traveled on Monday. So till Sunday, we trained like, like normal. But you know, Saturday, Sunday, I took already a little bit out because I don't want them to get too tired into the plane because also that is, again, a stressor. Mm. But the first part of the week was, uh, was hard. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as you said, you, for you, the first race was the women's race. So your men did not race in the individual race, only in the mixed oh. team relay. Oh. But, and, and that's an, an interesting, well, it's, you mentioned there that you thought that because of the course, the conditions, the fittest athlete would win. But then you also had a mixed team relay, which is a much shorter race for each individual. It's 20 to 23 minutes or so. So do you still think that the same applies even even for a short 23 minute 21 minute race that you still No need no no that's different and, and I mean for uh, Rachel and Maya the individual race was what we focus on and they have such high level that I knew they're going to be also okay for the for the for the team relay for uh, Marco and Yorick yeah okay they train much already Towards the Olympics, because we knew they're only going to do the mixed team relay, more specific uh, towards uh, the, the team relay. But also, that consisted of like a really good base block on altitude. We didn't train too hard over there. Extremely polarized, and then we came home, and then we used the altitude to, to do some specific work. Break uh, hmm. sessions. Uh, Marco ran a 3K all out, you know, really uh, specific things. And then they got uh, there. They were, I mean, they were like uh, almost two weeks before the race over there, 12 days. So they still could train a little bit in Tokyo. And, and they did. So they first adapted to the heat. Then we gave one or two uh, specific sessions, not too long, but in intensity it was, was high. And then we, we, we tapered again towards the mixed team relay. Mm. And, I, and I think uh, they, they were really fresh in the race. And, well, they were, these boys <laughs> were incredible. Uh, they did yeah. very well. They did, uh, yeah. yeah. It must be realistic. They are not world-class in the individual uh, race. You can look at the ranking. You can look at their results. But what they did in the mixed team relay was amazing. Yeah, no, it was an amazing, amazing race from 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 everybody on the team. It was really, yeah. I really enjoyed seeing seeing your team performance there. It was one of the highlights of of a great event, really, really great event. Um, yeah. What do you think? Uh, speaking of the mixed team relay, over the next one or two Olympic cycles, do you think that there, we will start to see some athletes getting more and more specialized towards mixed team relay, or do you still think that athletes, most athletes, will the strongest athletes or the Olympic distance will be the strongest or mixed team relay and we will see a strong overlap. What's your take on that? I, I still think there will be an overlap. I think the best athletes are the best, the best athletes also over the shorter distance. It's still, although it's only 20 minutes and you see that in, in Super League uh, as well, also there are no big surprises. You put the best athletes together, and the best athlete win. Yep. wins also there so i think there will still be an overlap with once in a while the specialist yeah got it and for example I, like yorick you could say 
In this case, he was a specialist. He is not the best swimmer, but over 300 meters with strong motivation, he can keep up probably 750 meters or even 1500 wouldn't be possible. Hmm. And if he is there, yeah, he is strong on the bike and in the run. So, I mean, and so far he was, he was, he was a specialist. Yeah. And talking about the heat adaptation a little bit more, um, one thing that was unique for Tokyo that we don't see in that many other places was the water temperature. It was very yeah. hot in the water. Did you do anything specific for that? You mentioned pre-cooling strategies before the race, but did you do things like training in a warm pool or, or yeah. anything like that? Yeah, yeah we, we, were, we were lucky. The, the days we were in, uh, in Japan, uh, we, we were there for the pre-event and, and then everybody complained that the water in the pool was too hot. And now we were happy that it was too hot because we just we, we reframed it towards hey this is specific this is what this is what we need you need to be prepared for hot water so and i don't think you need a lot of sessions for that i think we did four maybe maximum five uh sessions but yeah we train in in the hot water yeah Yeah. Yeah. and even at home uh one of the girls uh, she she trains in uh in uh how do you call it like uh as an it's, it's, pool. A, it's a it's a 50 meter pool but you know uh, it's it's almost like an aqua fitness temperature okay. uh, yeah. center yeah, yeah. Uh, w- what about when you, when you did the heat chamber work and the heat adaptation there already at home how how do you take that extra stress into account in the rest of the the athletes training do you do the low intensity work in the heat chamber or do you sometimes do specific work and then how do you think about recovery from those uh, sessions yeah we decided to do uh, and in cycling but also in the in the triathlon to do only low intensity work in the heat chamber and we did it uh, we did the um, heat chamber in former on altitude so there you have and the heat chamber and the altitude and all the training, etc. So yeah, you have to be careful with that. And I mean, the big advantage there is as a coach, you are there all the time. You can look them in the eyes and decide, hey, this is okay or this is not. This is not okay. Uh, so yes, we in, in, in Formula we did two times a week, and then we continued at home also to do two, even three times a week before the before the Olympic Games. And it was quite simple. We did forty-five minutes of easy riding or easy running. Maya was more on the bike and Rachel was more running. Mm. Yeah. Now, moving on to to the next question, Uh, let's talk a little bit about each specific discipline. So can you just give one or two important pieces of of advice for, for listeners that are listening to this podcast about how they can improve their swim, bike and run training? And let's start with the swim. I'm not a swimming coach. <laughs> I'm very happy in my career that I always had really great uh, swimming coaches who make the swimming program. I mean, in the meantime, I know a little bit about swimming, but it's more or less about the metabolic side, not not about uh, technique. But uh, I think if I would give uh, advice in swimming is... Uh, also there make it extremely polarized. I think a lot of people, because you're so focused on, on time splits, 
uh, they go too fast and they're literally always training in the gray zone, even in the gray zone towards, let's say, the, the, the black side of the zone too, too fast. And I think uh, the concept of doing, let's say, relatively high, easy volume compared with a lot of sprinting works very well in, in the swimmers is, is my idea. Hmm. And invest in, in technique, even if you're a little bit older, there is, there is, there are some things you still can learn. Yeah. What do you think about, this is a theory of mine that I have, that sometimes the reason that I agree, I think we often go, uh, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, go, go too fast in swimming. And I think one of the main reasons is that we do swimming is usually split up into into intervals and uh, sometimes it's mm. 100 sometimes it's 200 sometimes it's 400s or 600s but if you actually compare that to a 45 minute run or a one hour run you when you do a low intensity swim but you break it up into 400s you can actually do those 400s with a little bit of rest in between at something that would be that is the gray zone but but if somebody if coach told you to do a 45 minute straight swim then you would go slower and you might be at the right a lower intensity so it's not i'm not saying that we should just swim for 45 minutes but sometimes i think that with longer intervals if you do thousands instead of 400s then you have a lower risk yeah. of swimming too fast yeah, I, I i i agree with that i like boring <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think boring is a very important aspect of endurance sport and you have to prefer, prepare for that. Uh, nowadays, you see cyclists who have to do six-hour training and they have like uh, two, uh, they need two notebooks to write the training in, you know, and then, and then they work their training. But just six hours of cycling, you with your thoughts and focus on your cycling, I think that is one of the most important things you have to learn because in the race, it will be boring as well, especially in an Ironman where you are on your own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... I, I agree with you that uh, even just four kilometer or three kilometer of forty-five minutes just swimming is is a good good session. Mm. Deal with it in your head. And yes, if you make the distances shorter, there is a there's a possibility that you overpace uh, yourself. Yeah. All right. And on the and other side, is swimming. It also have. It's important to have this specific feel because there is the technique factor in swimming is much bigger than in cycling and running. So you need to swim race pace to have this specific feeling. So yeah, you have to divide your energy between the two, but why not just swim once or twice a week? Just, just swim. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do understand the argument of breaking things up into intervals because it gives you a mental reset to even in those low intensity sessions, also making sure that you do yeah. it with, with really good technique. And the, yeah. the risk is that for a lot of athletes, it's difficult to do that for, let's say, 45 minutes straight, uh, unless you get those yeah. short breaks. So there are pros and cons, uh, to, to yeah. each, I guess. Well, you already gave uh, a good tip there for cycling, but uh, can we have one other piece of advice regarding cycling training? Yeah, I, I think even if you're not very prone to injury, I think cycling is the easiest way uh, to get the volume in still. And the last few years, I also work with some, uh, some, some runners, really good runners, 
and even they implemented cycling into their program and pro- progressed a lot. And the nice thing now is they were very skeptic in the beginning right? because, yeah, I'm a runner and I don't want to have cycling legs. <laughs> I don't, don't want to have uh, glutes and, and quadriceps that are big, you know, but they don't get it and they feel it helps them a lot in 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 running and especially again in the consistency because yeah running it's a high high impact but also high risk uh, risk sport so the nice thing is that these runners now accept cycling as as running training more or less so uh, i think my biggest advice would be use the cycling to run faster mm. and don't go into the risk zone when you're uh, when you're in your running training because it's not necessary if you're out for one month you have nothing yeah that that's a great tip and uh, then finally for run training what would your advice be there yeah i'm, I'm uh, i think in running technique is again a little bit more important than in cycling obviously and i like uh I say it's a sprint, but it's not a sprint. But you can say like eight by fifty on, let's say, fifteen hundred or three thousand meter pace. That's not sprinting, mm. but it's controlled fast running where you can really focus on your technique. I don't believe in all these running drills, for example, but I believe in fast running where you find a technique that is suitable for your body, for your biomechanics, and I think that works for Olympic distance, but also for long distance. And it doesn't cost you anything extra. You don't make more lactate. You just focus yourself inside your endurance training on also the neuromuscular part. And like I said in the beginning, for me, that is very important. So build build these sprints in. How, how often should uh, should you do that? Uh, how, how often do you do those, those types of sprints? Yeah, I mean, if you're running like four times a week, I would do that two times. It's for mm-hmm. free. For yeah. me, it's for free. It's not the extra risk factor, not even an injury risk factor because you're not sprinting all out. No, you're going. It's fast running more or less over 50 meters. Yeah. Do, do you always do them on the flat or do you sometimes do more like hill sprints? That's a very interesting. I do like uh, three ways. I do them on the flat. I do them uphill. I do them downhill. Mm-hmm. Or I do only a piece downhill to get easy speed in and then continue on the flat. You can make all kinds of uh, variation depending on what kind of runner you have before you. If you, for example, have somebody in triathlon, you see a lot of runners who run at a very low stride frequency. I don't think that's very efficient in triathlon because you need a lot of strength for that. Now, for them, maybe downhill running with focus on stride frequency is easier. Mm. If you have the typical high-frequency runner, maybe you can do a little bit more uphill running. And in the past, I even did the, the hit sessions and running, not on the track, but on – it's a slinger bag. I, I live there as a 1K climb of 5%. I, I live more or less on the top, and we just did 6 by 1,000 on that climb, uphill running. And these guys never ran faster than, let's say, 350 on a K because that was really hard on that climb. But in the race, they ran fast without even have run the three-minute pace before. 
Yeah, it's much kinder on the hamstrings, especially to to run uphill than yeah. to run on the flat. Yeah. So, but I, I think very important here to say is that there is not one solution. You have an athlete in front of you, and as a coach, you try to get as much information about this athlete as possible of technique, how how his mentality works, uh, what kind of person he is, the metabolic system, all these things, and then you decide, okay, where are we going to work? And that also is true for the for the technique part in running, for example. They say, okay, this is what we're going to work with. And then you speak about this with your athlete and you make a decision. Okay, this is how we're going to do it. And then you're going for your plan. Yeah. But for me, the most interesting thing about coaching and training is that I have somebody in front of me who I maybe even don't know. And then we, we start somewhere. And to find out the road to getting better that's that's a really interesting thing and there are so many things that play a role and the things we discussed uh, today that is very interesting okay what decisions am i going to make yeah yeah no th- those are uh, really great points and uh, yeah th- just to on on the uphill and downhill and flat uh, sprints or strides whatever you want to call them uh, it is really interesting to hear you talk about the and the stride frequency there as a factor i hadn't thought about that but that's yeah definitely an, an interesting factor to consider i i've been thinking about things like some a runner that or a triathlete that lacks some speed i tend to give them more often downhill strides because then you get some that free speed and getting used to yeah. getting the neuromuscular system to to work at that higher firing rate and somebody that lacks more strength uh, but has the speed they might might do those uphills yeah, i mean then you're running with your brain not with your legs your legs can do that but your brain cannot yeah yeah so you have to help it once in a while yeah uh all right and uh then i want to ask about for amateur athletes uh just general tips can be anything do you have Three top tips for amateur athletes uh, that are interested in improving their performance. Most important top tip is enjoy what you're doing because it makes it so much easier. And I mean, that I try, I think we began with that, but that I try to do very specific with also the top athletes. Try to enjoy what you're doing. It makes it so much easier. And I really am convinced that the effect of a training session is bigger when you enjoyed it. So put a lot of energy into that. and I always say, if you don't feel like training, don't go. If you don't feel like train, training three days in a row, there is something wrong. But sometimes it's yeah, something you don't know what's going on, but you just don't feel like training. Very good reason not to train. I mean, it has to do with the first, with the, with the first point. And the second is, uh, the, the, the other tip would be, if you have to decide uh, volume over quality, go for volume, less risk. And I think especially for a recreational athlete it brings you much more yeah uh that was that was two was there was there one one more tip okay (laughs) (laughs) we had enjoy we had volume and a variation bring as much variation in your training as possible and with variation i'd also mean different courses different places uh by this, you create like optionality. So you also can perform under different circumstances, which is very important. Also something that makes you anti-fragile. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to 
go out even when it's raining <laughs> on the bike yeah. not, not always yeah. do the swift option yeah. um great and uh if you could go back in time 10 years uh, what what would you tell yourself if you want to go back even further then you can choose that but i think 10 years is already a long time so i'm sure you've learned a lot in the last 10 years i learn almost every day thanks to my athletes and the people surrounding me who ask questions like 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 yourself uh, i think what i would say is i for a very long time even 10 years ago i was very focused on planning i really like to make a very precise planning almost a year in front uh, making what i'm going to do in every week and i try to make that specific as so as specific as possible i need that just for myself probably and it was yeah it looked very professional when you have like a planning with all the different aspects you can take into account and then but i also know that i never finished the planning like i planned it never and and so when i look back i say hey be a little bit less strict on on the planning part i still make a planning as a guideline as a blueprint uh but sometimes I don't even look at it anymore I, I, because every day something happens. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's a really good point. And um, me, yeah, def- definitely can, can recognize that myself as well. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, it's funny, I mentioned Steve Magnus earlier, but on his podcast, uh, on a very recent episode, they talked about Stuff that they did in the past they don't do anymore, and I think that sort of detailed planning uh, for an entire season was was the first thing that was mentioned on that podcast. It's funny. <laughs> it costs you a lot um, of energy, and you're never going to finish it. Yeah. Well, at least yeah. I never did it. I never did no, it. No, you, usually I've, I get to two or three months maybe <laughs> at, at that yeah. point. Uh, something and is that is that changed. Three months is already a very long period to finish yeah. planning. Yeah. I mean, the most I, I said before, the interesting thing is that, that to, to to adapt every day. I mean, you try. I will not say to get the maximum out of every day because that is almost impossible. Let's say to get the maximum out of every week, and for that you have always to make to make decisions. Yeah, decisions about doing a training or not doing a training. Even when I get on the track and we plan the training, and I see the warm up and maybe let's say one or two strides, I say, "Okay, we're going we're going to go faster today." I don't know why I make the decision, but because probably something I see, and, yeah. but I cannot explain. I know it when I see it, <laughs> you know, something like that, and then you decide, "Hey, we're going faster today," and. If the athletes agrees, of course, but that's the interesting thing, and that's why I, I, yes, I still make a planning, but not as strict anymore as I did did before. Yeah, no. Just to be clear, the three months is the longest that I ever when I because I also used to do longer season plans, and it's yeah. of all of all the long season plans I did, the longest that I ever got in one <laughs> one situation where it really yeah. held up was three months. It's not something that was normal. Normally, it. Uh, it mm. didn't last as long as that, <laughs> so mm. so I definitely gone through that same um, yeah that, that same that same uh, arc of uh, yeah. progression or change in in coaching uh, regarding the strict planning for for long term. Um, mm. And uh, what's one thing right now that you are interested in that you're learning about or are fascinated by within coaching or endurance sports? Yeah, I. I, I... 
I mean, I was talking in the beginning a lot about fitness and the discovery of fitness didn't finish for me yet. It still keeps me busy a lot and it has to do. I, I, I told uh, about uh, Eugène Janssen, the, the, the doctor from the university, which was very important in the, in the beginning of my career. And then our careers separated a little. And this year we did like a project we coached together. For the first time in 25 years, we really did work together on, 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 on athletes. And that was quite interesting because his view on fitness is very interesting. And I have a lot of contact with him now. And I mean, I, I did much more with my coaching career than he did. He, he, he did some scientific work. He was a uh, sports doctor. Uh, and I went more into, into coaching. But yeah, to reflect on that, what he says every day, that's very interesting. And, and one of the things he said the other weekends is a funny one. He said, yeah, the athlete said, uh, yeah, I did this week, let's say 10 sessions and I want to do 10 good sessions. And he said, that's bullshit. You know what's interesting? If you have uh, 10 sessions and you have two good ones, really good ones, that's a perfect week. It's not about the good session. It's about the bad session. Try to avoid the bad ones that are catastrophic. And that's the little things. Every once in a while, he says these things. And that has all to do with fitness. Mm. Try What I'm doing is I try to avoid catastrophic mistakes, more or less, in a, in a, in a training. And a catastrophic mistake, I mean a mistake where consistency uh, gets blocked. Yeah? So... This one was a very, very nice example of yeah things I'm still, still learning and, and still reflecting on. Yeah, uh, and uh, finally, before we go to the rapid fire questions, uh, I want to ask about what, what's next for you and for the Dutch uh, Triathlon Federation, the national team. What's on the horizon? What, what's your outlook on the future? Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, this is my last race. <laughs> so I, I retire after this race, at least with the, in this role as a head coach. I will retire. I, I will stay in a very, very small role as an advisor with, with the federation. Uh, so for me, there will be a period of uh, yeah, taking it a little bit more easier. I, I always did it after... Uh, periods where I put a lot of energy and to read again and yeah, to to rediscover and also to go new new roads new 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 projects that are interesting and for the Dutch Federation in three years time there is Paris so now is the 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 time to see who is going to continue and what way are we going to do that uh, what are we going to do with the juniors etc 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 which is a very interesting period as well. Yeah, all right. Now let's move into the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is what's their favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Yeah, I mean, that's more or less uh, two, and it's nothing to do with training. The first one is Anti Fragile from, from Nassim Taleb. And that's just because he gave me insight in something. I maybe already knew, but I saw it now from a different perspective. And the, the other one is uh, the two books of Steve Magnus and uh, Brad Stolberg. Yeah. Also because it's a like, slightly different angle. Peak performance and the passion yeah. paradox. Yeah. 
Yeah, both. Yeah. And uh, what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? I think uh, curiosity. Great. And <laughs> who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Yeah, the, the guy I was just talking about, Eugène Janssen, because he was saying things 30 years ago, which are where at that moment sounded stupid, but now it's now, now it's reality. Yeah. About polarized training, for example. Yeah. At that point in time, we were totally focused on the aerobic threshold. And uh, he was just talking about black and white uh, and not gray training. So and 30 years ago, they laughed with him and now it's reality. Mm, yeah. And yeah, he still good. inspires me with every phone talk we have. So that's that, and he's 72 by now. Yeah. Well, to uh, as as you brought that up, uh, actually, one one thing that I think is too good to leave out again. This is from the physical performance podcast interview that you did, but you talked about uh, Richard Murray's uh, 5K time trial that he did during the lockdown period in 2020 during the COVID lockdown, yeah. and how he did that on no speed work so can you can you just <laughs> tell the listeners what what did he do how how fast did he run his 5k uh and uh, what what was the training he did leading into that the training was a lot of volume i, I mean corona came we were not able to race and we said okay what we can do now the olympics will probably be next year so what we can do now is lay an aerobic base like we have never had before and we don't get interrupted by races so what we do is uh, consistent, in his case, consisted like 25-hour weeks, which is a lot for him because he is not in the really high volume perspective mm. and because he is a faster type. Uh, so that's what we did. So he got really fit. Fitness for him got to a new level. And in the run, we did uh, more or less uh, easy runs not even really long runs because we did that on the bike together with the neuromuscular part, a lot of strides and the tempo endurance thing, marathon pace. For him, it was like 320, 330 pace. That's what we did. And before the 5K, probably we did one track session. We didn't do it on the track. We did it in the forest, but one time he went fast. That's it. That, that's what I said also before huh? on the maximum fitness, you can already go fast. And maybe if we would have trained really specific on the 5K for, let's say, two or three weeks more, he came. He would have come down from, I think now he did like 13.34 to maybe 13.25. That's nine seconds. It's very important, nine seconds. Mm. But people focus on these nine seconds and not on how to get to the 13.34. Yeah, I think I think that's a fantastic anecdote to <laughs> to wrap up this episode with. But yeah, just to to highlight those the discrepancy there. In he ran thirteen thirty four, which is what what is that? Um, that must be uh, oh gosh. Um, you mean uh, kilometer wise? Two forty four. Two forty four. Yeah, and and his yeah. training was almost, almost almost never faster than three twenty. Uh, Per, yeah. per kilometer so so yeah i saw that a lot i yeah. really saw that a lot yeah and i still have discussions with athletes who have uh even also with rachel now i mean she can run 10k and like 32 20 probably and if she runs 320 we have to just i'm never gonna 
give this space for 10k, but she does. Yeah. <laughs> because she is incredibly fit. Again, I cannot uh, lay enough value on this on this on this fitness thing. Mm. And if you're fit enough, then you're able to train hard. But a lot of people make the mistake to turn it the other way around. They want to train hard because they need that for speed. But they do do it on a on, on, on a too low fitness level, so they suffer and they don't get better. At least not on, maybe on the short term, one or two weeks, but not on the long term. I don't believe in that. Yeah. Well, uh, Louis, I think you have summarized this episode really, really well here in these last few minutes with uh, some of the most important things. So, uh, so yeah, that was a really, really great, uh, great anecdote and great, uh, great summary of uh, some of the things that we've been talking about here. Uh, so, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, do you have any social media that uh, where people can follow you that you want to mention? Oh, uh, I don't know. I- I'm. I'm on Twitter and I'm on uh, Instagram. I don't know really my name. I'll put them in the so. I'll, No problem. I'll put yeah, it in the show notes. Okay, <laughs> do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And uh, well, ha- have a really nice time uh, now that you, after your good luck in the last race, first of all, in, in Edmonton. And uh, then after that, enjoy some time off and uh, some time for reflection and hopefully some new adventures to come after that. Thanks a lot. And it was my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Louis. I really enjoyed uh, the chat and I thought it was really insightful. Lots of great gems and pieces of wisdom from Louis there. Uh, so hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. As always, you can find the show notes for the episode on scientifictriathlon.com. We're linked to Louis' social media profiles, as I said, and also to a couple of other podcast episodes that I think are worth listening to. In particular, uh, Louis' interview on the physical performance show, which I referenced a couple of times was a really good one but also back in the day quite some years ago now on the real coaching podcast by another favorite guest uh, of mine joel filial and uh, paulo Sousa. Uh, so go and check those out as well if you're interested in learning more about louis thoughts and philosophies if you're looking to take your triathlon performance to the next level, then the best way to do so is to get a coach. And uh, I just want to remind everybody that we have a fantastic team of coaches here at Scientific Triathlon. You can go and read all about uh, how our coaching works, uh, our profiles and so on on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash coaching or you find it directly in the menu bar. And if you're interested, don't hesitate to send an email to learn more and uh, we can set up a call with a coach and uh, take it from there. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swim skins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Don't forget to check out those new Matador Air sunglasses. And thank you to Senate. Check out the Senate indoor swim trainer that you can use to improve your technique, power, and stamina, and also to be able to swim or get specific training for swimming in more often, even when you sometimes might not have time to get a full session in at the pool or in the open water. And remember that uh, as this episode goes out on the 30th of August, there's still one more day until tomorrow, the 31st of August of 2021, that you can get more than 40% off the swim trainer uh, when the summer sale ends. And you do that by combining the summer sale automatic discount with the special discounts that you can get on senatesimtrainer.com for slash TTS. 
Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart. Keep loving crap.